The Weekend Variety Wireless. Shipwreck Tales with John McChrystal. This in quite recent memory, a huge cruise liner went to the bottom. She's still there. You must remember with the senseless loss of a life in the end. The Mikhail Lermontov, a Soviet ship, 1986 in our waters. John, this is a fascinating story because we can know so much about it, but we're left with so many whys. With a lot of significant incidents or accidents in human history, there's always been just a kernel of mystery lying at the middle of it, and this is an example of that. I think it's safe to say that human folly was to blame here. Shipwrecks, I suppose, can be divided into three kinds. There's the sort that happened due to an act of God, when God stirs up the weather a bit or puts rocks in the wrong places or that kind of thing. There are those arising from human error, and there are those arising just from human foolishness. We've seen an example of that in recent times with Costa Concordia. Just one sea captain's desire to impress another sea captain by sailing his ship really close to the beach went horribly wrong. The Mikhail Lermontov, on the face of it, and I'm not sure we'll ever know any more than what's on the face of it, is very similar to the Costa Concordia. One doesn't usually associate cruise liners with the Soviet regime, but there we are. Yes, they had them. Yeah, they did. They, they were pretty good shipbuilders back in the day. There were five of these things, an absolutely beautiful vessel too. She was originally commissioned as a passenger liner as opposed to a cruise liner. A passenger liner was there as a mode of transport to get people from one place to another. And her intended role was to carry people from Leningrad, as it was then, to New York. It soon occurred to the Soviet government that they were sitting on a gold mine with this beautiful ship if they turned her into a pleasure boat. A big ship, one and a half football fields long, 20,000 tonnes. She dwarfs the inter-island ferries which cruise in the same bit of water as she was cruising on the fateful day. Because she's a cruise liner, she's only got one class and that is luxury. She's catering to the well-to-do and she was appointed accordingly. Absolutely glorious. Her cabins and her bars and all her facilities were perfectly sumptuous. She was going to skirt the coast of New Zealand, starting up in the north and then making her way down, touching at Wellington, bit of a cruise in the sounds, and then out and down the west coast to Milford Sound, whereupon she'd then cross the Tasman to Australia and complete her voyage over there. She had been to Wellington and she left at midnight on the 15th of February 1986. Uh, she headed across the strait and instead of going in the top of Queen Charlotte Sound, which was usual for a large vessel, it was decided that she would go through Tory Channel. This is the first remarkable thing about what she did in that fateful 24 hours. It's a very, very narrow piece of ocean. You have to sort of manoeuvre the ship very tightly to get around the dog leg. Anyone who's been aboard the inter-island ferries will have been impressed by how big the ship looks and how small the channel looks as you go through there. Needless to say, the Mikhail Lermontov is much bigger. It was going to take quite a feat of seamanship just to get her through there safely. Why they did it is Again, one of these little mysteries. It's believed that they did it so that there was a bit of a photo opportunity for the ship's agents. Stopped at Picton, the passengers aboard, more than 700. 
There were 408 passengers, but together with the crew, it made for a total of 738 people. I'm not clear whether that 738 people aboard includes the two locals who were aboard, Captain Don Jamison, who becomes infamous in this account, and his assistant, G.F. Neal, the deputy harbourmaster. Jamison himself was the Marlborough harbourmaster and he was the Picton pilot, and they were both aboard for the purposes of piloting the boat out Neil was learning the business of piloting. He was due to get off the ship in New Zealand waters and go back to his home port of Picton. Jamison was staying aboard and heading on to Sydney. The captain, a very important figure in this, Captain Vladislav Vorobyov. He was 48 and he was pretty experienced. He wasn't the Mikhail Lermontov's regular captain. Uh, That man was on leave, but he had previously commanded her as a relieving captain and he was perfectly competent to do it. He had beneath him a very experienced and competent set of officers, in particular on the bridge when all the action takes place, there's a man named Sergei Gurev, the second mate, and appears to have been a very competent officer. Very experienced complement of officers, and the crew seem to have been pretty good at their jobs as well. Don Jameson is the pilot. What does he have to do for people that don't understand the work of pilots? The pilot is the expert in local waters. When a foreign-going vessel enters foreign waters, they should take aboard a pilot who, being an expert in what's going on, where everything is, the local conditions, that kind of thing, will bring the ship safely into port. He isn't in command of the vessel. He works in consultation with the ship's officers to ensure that the correct courses are steered and the correct courses of action are taken. So that's really Don Jamison's job. He's not there to boss everyone around aboard this vessel. He's there to give them expert advice on how to handle their ship in these waters. He boarded sometime during the day and, in fact, attended a small function that was held aboard where alcohol was served. This may or may not be significant. He was aboard for most of the afternoon. She had arrived at Picton at 6.45 in the morning and she was due to leave in later part of the afternoon. The weather forecast, not too bad. There was a bit of a blow in Cook Strait. It was blowing up to around 25 knots, which isn't that significant in terms of Cook Strait. There was rain in the forecast, so visibility was expected to shut down every now and again in the showers. But all in all, not a bad forecast either. And this thing has been described as bristling with aerials because she had lots of radar, depth sounders, you name it. She was pretty good at finding her position, even in the worst of conditions. A very modern, well-equipped ship. And an experienced pilot, although he does become infamous, doesn't he? He'd been serving as the Marlborough Harbour Master since 1970. He'd even worked with Soviet vessels and crew, and he'd worked with the sister ship of the Mikhail Lermontov, Alexander Pushkin. He'd had experience both with Soviet people and with Soviet ships in these waters. He was claimed to know this place like the back of his hand. He'd contributed to a cruising guide which had very detailed information for boaties on exactly what was going on around Queen Charlotte Sound, Cape Jackson, the whole area that this trip traverses. Well, the pilot's guidance of this ship ends up being most perplexing. We know exactly what happened and where it happened, but why is, I think, still a bit of a mystery today. This is the Mikhail Lermontov from 1986. She's at the bottom of the ocean in the Marlborough Sounds. He was a harbour master, port of Picton. He was the person with local knowledge. He should have experience. I trusted him. Weekend Variety Wireless. 
This week, the Mikhail Lermontov, 1986. She sunk in the Marlborough Sounds. An experienced Marlborough pilot aboard Don Jameson becomes a central figure. He's had a few drinks and he's been entertained, hasn't he? But it's impossible to know if he'd had too many or, or what. According to his testimony before the inquiry, and there seems to have been a bit of corroborating evidence as well, he'd had three standard alcoholic drinks in the course of this function, which was three hours before the Mikhail Lermontov sailed at three o'clock in the afternoon and many hours before the crucial decision-making takes place. So it's reasonably safe to assume that unless all parties are lying, he wasn't influenced by alcohol. He claimed that he was very tired, that he'd been overworked prior to this, uh, but there's been evidence adduced to show that that was not necessarily the case. Mm. Uh, in fact, the presence of this man, G.F. Neal, aboard, his deputy, had greatly alleviated the work stress on Jamison. So while he had been overworked in the past, the period for roughly a month leading up to this mishap, Jamison was actually less hard-worked. From some passengers' testimony, Almost immediately, this huge liner left Picton. They were saying it was lurching. They were very, very close to the Fenua on some occasions. Have you heard this? Yeah, it's pretty well documented. There seems to have been a policy agreed between both Jamison and the captain that they should sail very close into shore in order to give the passengers a real treat in terms of a close-up view of the scenery. Now, the sounds are very deep. It's a drowned river valley, so they're very sort of steep, bush-clad walls dropping into the water. They mostly continue to drop straight down. There are a few exceptions to that, of course, and these prove to be critical as the story progresses. But on the whole, the impression that you can get is that you're right on the shoreline when you're sailing along in the sounds. You may be quite close, but you're actually in very deep water. Jamison seems to have decided that he would really treat the passengers by sailing as close to the shore as he felt comfortable doing. They began this right away. No sooner had they left Picton than they went to Shakespeare Bay, which is quite close by, to have a look at the Edwin Fox, which was a celebrity shipwreck. In the course of that, he discovered that the Mikhail Lermontov didn't manoeuvre that well. Her bow thruster didn't answer his command. He actually came pretty close to running the ship aground even there. He reckoned he was only about 30 metres offshore and at right angles to it mm. when one of his manoeuvres there went slightly wrong. That should have been a bit of a warning. You would have thought that he might not be that well advised to take liberties with the handling of this vessel. He was also giving a running commentary to the passengers, almost like a tour guide. He was very proud of this bit of water and the landscapes around it. He was on the PA as they were cruising very close to the shoreline, up Queen Charlotte Sound, and telling the passengers about sites of interest. Yeah, he was playing the tour bus driver. And meanwhile, the captain had left the deck. The captain obviously trusted him intimately. The officers apparently were very impressed with the way he'd handled the ship, so they clearly decided this bloke knows what he's doing. And that explains a lot about the amount of trust that was placed in him by the officers as they were going along Queen Charlotte Sound. That's the deal with ships and pilots, though. That's what pilots are for. You trust them. They are the locals. Yes, but they don't assume command of the vessel. Jamison was effectively in command of this vessel. Although there were two senior officers up there with him, he had the second mate and he had the chief navigating officer, they were basically outside the conversation that was going on between Jamison and the helmsman. So Jamison was literally in command of this vessel. He was telling the helmsman where to steer and the helmsman was steering there. 
That is not usual. That's abrogation of the responsibility of the ship's officers to place quite that amount of control in the hands of the pilot, although I'm sure it's not that uncommon. If you can imagine listeners going out of one of the Marlborough Sounds, hugging the coast at the headland of this sound, off the rocky headland, a little way out, a few hundred metres by the looks, there's a lighthouse on a rock. Now he's going up and says, keep turning left. He's trying to get in between the lighthouse and the rocks. This does scare people, doesn't it? And why is he doing it? Who knows why he's doing it? It was clearly his own initiative because under instructions from the captain, the navigating officer had charted a course of 40 degrees to take the Mikhail Lermontov clear out of the top of Queen Charlotte Sound from Ship Cove, which was their last little sightseeing port of call. They followed that course mostly. They went inside Motuara Island, which is actually pretty close to the land itself. And people who saw this done had lived in the area for many years. They'd never seen it done by large vessels before, let alone a vessel of the Mikhail Lermontov's dimensions. Probably so impressed with the reactions of people when they went through Tory Channel, he thought, I can go one better even than that. There's a fine line, and unfortunately he crossed it. They sailed very close to Anakakata Bay, where a family that had lived there for around 20 years watched it sail by and was so impressed they even radioed the bridge to say, Christ, that looks amazing. Ship that size that close in. Never seen that before. And they wished Jamison, who was answering this call, a very safe and pleasant journey. That was at 5.30 in the afternoon. Jamison seems to have made an impulsive decision, as you say, to steer between Cape Jackson, which is part of the mainland, and this little offshore rock, which has a beacon on it called Jackson's Head Beacon. He, in his testimony, said that he'd been through there many times and he'd fished there many times before. He knew the bit of water very well. It was wide, easily wide enough to go through. It was about 500 metres wide, he recalled, and it was much deeper than the draft of the Mikhail Lermontov at its shallowest points. He was tragically wrong about that. It was much narrower than 500 metres, and the reason the beacon was on that offshore rock was because that was the outer limit of an area of what mariners know as foul ground. It's area that's sort of up and down and it's very close to the surface. You can't sail over it. Three ships had been known to have tried in the past and they'd all come to grief there. As the captains of the Lastingham, the Rangatoto and the Hippolys could attest, this was a nasty bit of water. Very tidal and shallow ground. What was he thinking? Yeah, what was he thinking? Uh, I understand one of the things he was thinking was being pretty keen on telling the story of those shipwrecks to the people as they went through. What hubris, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, it's a bad look in light of subsequent events. It, It really is. He was still on the PA, although he apparently hung up the PA and said he'd finished just before they headed through this bit of water. He told the story of those shipwrecks, basically gave them a sneak preview of what they were about to experience. He definitely seems to have been keen to give them a real close encounter with the land. Those aboard are experienced crew. They have a trust in a pilot, but there would be a seaman's instinct, wouldn't there, about sailing between a lighthouse and the land? Yeah, it's unthinkable in many ways. 
All the way up from Picton, apparently, there had been nervousness on the bridge at how close they were, and twice, while he himself was on the bridge, the captain had asked Jamison to manoeuvre further away from land. Jamison had replied on each occasion, there's plenty of water, there's nothing to worry about. As they executed this reasonably sharp turn to port to go between the lighthouse and Cape Jackson, the navigating officer and the second officer both questioned the decision and were pretty unhappy at what he was proposing to do. But again, he reassured them, nothing to worry about. And this is the captain of the Mikhail Lermontov. My officer was uh, placed in difficult situation. When my officer, is my opinion, when my officer understood that is some dangerous situation, they have no time and place to abort. 1737, the ship struck and it's described as three big jolts into trembling. She began to list to starboard almost immediately and that led the gashes in the hull, there are three of them, are all on the port side. So it seems pretty likely that she fouled a rock by the port. Passengers apparently, one or two of them had seen what was going to happen. One of them, an Australian guide, turned to his wife and said, geez, if this shit doesn't hit the rocks, I'm gonna eat my hat. His hat was safe. Other passengers had remarked that they could see white water ahead shortly before she struck, and immediately after she struck, passengers reported seeing seaweed, mud, sand and rocks in the propeller wash. She'd just basically ridden straight over a reef. This would have alerted the captain. Now, one of the mysteries is what the hell the captain was up to. He'd left the bridge at around 4.30 in the afternoon, His reason for doing that was that he was cold and wet. It was raining, he had been out on deck, he might have got cold and wet if he hadn't worn his wetties. Who knows why he wouldn't. He was below for well over an hour when the vessel struck, and if he meant simply to have a shower and a change of clothes, he was pretty slow about it. That's one mystery. Another mystery is that they were at the limit of the pilot's responsibility. Each chart of a port has a line drawn on it which shows where the pilot is responsible and where the captain's responsible. Cape Jackson lies beyond the pilot's responsibility, although it seems to have been agreed that Jamison would hand over to the captain after they'd passed Cape Jackson. But yes, as you say, there is no clearer signal to a sea captain that his vessel is in trouble than the sound of his vessel hitting the bricks, as uh, boaties tend to say. The captain arrived on the bridge pretty smartly. He apparently asked what happened several times, and Jamison replied on each occasion he was white and shaking. I don't know. I don't know. Oh dear, oh dear. We'll take a break and come back with the Mikhail Lermontov. She's at the bottom of the ocean in the Marlborough Sounds today. This isn't without loss of life. Mikhail Lermontov, 1986. The Weekend. Variety. Wireless. Shipwreck tale this week, Mikhail Lermontov, 1986. Big cruise liner, one and a half football fields long. We've described the journey from Picton out and it seems as though the pilot has taken uh, one hell of a risk and it's come stuck. Just a thought, what the result may have been if the captain or the crew had acted on their instincts, took over from the pilot, whom they thought might have been taking too big a risk, steered it to starboard instead of port, and hit the rocks on the starboard side, they would be completely lambasted as being irresponsible and not letting the pilot do the job. That is a good thought, and it's true as well. 
I guess the person calling the shots was always going to be the one on the gun and Jamison was indisputably in charge here because the captain wasn't even on the bridge. Mm. It's a tantalising what might have been in many ways. The result for the ship would have been little different. She was in an area where she probably couldn't help but hit something because the pilot had got her into that position. Captain Vladislav Morobyov of the Mikhail Lemontov. When I came off the bridge, the, the Captain Jemison tried to give command to Helsman 10 degrees port. I, I said stop and, and start to and hand over the command of the vessel my, myself. There was loss of life almost immediately. Apparently tons and tons of water coming aboard very quickly and a man in the refrigeration compartment. She struck absolutely adjacent to the area where the refrigeration equipment was housed. The 33-year-old refrigeration engineer, Pavel Zagladimov, was on station there and he was never seen again. He probably died more or less instantly because the breach in the hull was right there and very shortly after the hull was breached, the watertight doors were closed. So if he didn't die instantly, he would have died very shortly afterwards. The effect of this is to tear a big hole in the hull and is so often the way with these modern hulls. They're divided into watertight compartments. The ship will retain buoyancy so long as a certain number of watertight compartments are uncompromised. As is so often the way, you hit a ship in the right way against the right thing and you overcome that safety measure. As reports became available to the captain, it was clear that this ship was not going to float for much longer. He estimated he had two hours. It was pretty certain at that point that the ship was going to go down. He immediately, not immediately actually, it took half an hour, but half an hour after she struck, at one minute past six, he issued a mayday, which indicated that he believed that the life of those aboard the Mikhail Lermontov was in immediate danger. He therefore requested assistance. I asked him to help me to send the mayday, and he carried out it. I did not cancel. He was having difficulty establishing radio contact. It's very high land down in the sounds. That can cause all sorts of problems for radio telephones. He was having trouble getting Wellington Radio or Picton Radio for that matter. And in fact, he ended up establishing his most reliable contact with the Baker family who had a farm nearby, in fact, right on Cape Jackson. They'd merrily watched the Mikhail Lermontov sail by and then heard on their radio that she was issuing a mayday very shortly afterwards. They buzzed to the top of the ridgeline on their trail bikes and they could actually see her just offshore with a significant list to starboard developing and going down by the head. So they were in no doubt that this vessel was in enormous danger. The mayday has been issued, and fair enough, err on the side of safety with so many passengers aboard. And we should also mention their average age, about 70 as well. Yeah, apparently the average age was 70 and that's really long in the tooth in many ways when you suddenly rely on people's agility to save themselves. We've often mentioned just how difficult it is to launch and navigate lifeboats and then even to get into the damn things. It's so much worse when people are not capable and reasonably agile. May Day at 6 o'clock, there are these other ships that are in the area and they do what is the duty of the sea. They, they come to aid immediately, don't they? That's right. There were two reasonably handy. There was the Tarahiko, which is a LPG tanker. She was full of LPG, so didn't really want to get too tangled up with sticky situations. She was about 17 miles away. 
but she responded immediately and began heading in that direction. The Arahura, which is one of the inter-island ferries, was in Tory Channel at that point, and she immediately declared her intention to divert to the scene as well. But then, inexplicably, to me, this is almost worse than what got the ship into trouble in the first place. The May Day was cancelled. I don't know whether this was a decision taken by the captain in consultation with Don Jamison or whether it was Don Jamison himself who seems to have been handling the comms. But either way, Jamison cancelled the May Day at 18.19, less than 20 minutes after it was issued. So in other words, we're not in immediate danger of losing life here. We are in trouble, but we're not in immediate danger. So as far as anyone was concerned, as the Mikhail Lermontov had had a spot of bother, they'd overreacted, but now they were OK. In the meantime, her best option seemed to be to try to beach the vessel, so to find a shallow bit of water and ground her so that she wasn't going to sink and everyone could be ferried off more or less at everyone's leisure. They were quite handy to Port Gore, needless to say, and that did have shallow water, and so that's where they headed. It gives me a bit of a queer feeling. Whatever the motive was from either men, whoever decision it was, it was Jameson that cancelled the May Day. It's just not a good look, is it? It's like hoping that this isn't going to be so bad. Let's not alert people to an awful mistake just in case we can get away with it. In what follows, there seems to have been a definite attempt to try to mitigate the damage. They're not going to save the ship. They're both convinced of that, but they might be able to get her into a position where she can be salvaged. But their primary concern is to make sure they can get into a position where they themselves can get the passengers off without any outside assistance. And in that way, just mitigate the disaster that this is clearly in danger of becoming. They seem to have decided this course of action was tenable because Port Gore was close, the Mikhail Lermontov could make 15 knots and at this stage she had full power. So they began steaming in that direction and they were probably confident that the next thing that would happen is she'd settle gently into the sand and mud and they could set about making things less bad than they could be. However, a report began reaching the captain that water was coming through a bulkhead behind the switchboard. The switchboard comprised two halves, each duplicating the other, so that if power was lost or anything happened to one half of the switchboard, the other half could maintain the function. Trouble was, this crack had opened up right behind the switchboard and was spraying both halves, and it was getting worse. I tried to, to approach, to reach this sand beach, but... When I increase speed, increasing penetration of the seawater in the engine room. It appeared to be getting worse because they were going at 15 knots, so they slowed down. Almost immediately after they performed that, the water killed the electrics, which killed the motors and killed pretty much everything aboard, except emergency lighting and the radios. We actually have some recording of Don Jameson's voice from aboard the Mikhail Lermontov. The captain is now trying to seek the safety of at least kind of beaching her in a difficult place to do it. But she's got to be manoeuvrable to do that. Events 
and the, the, the level of damage to the ship didn't allow him to do that. There's some uncertainty as to whether she actually grounded in Port Gore. Jamison and the captain both seem to think that she had actually nosed onto the mud and sand bottom at the head of Port Gore. If that's the case, then the wise course of action would have been to let the anchors go. It's been speculated that the reason this wasn't done was because there was no longer any power, which would have been necessary to operate the anchors. I don't think that can be true. I think the anchors could have been mechanically operated. In any case, the anchors are still there, undeployed with the wreck on the bottom, so it clearly wasn't done. And if she ever grounded, then she soon drifted back out into deeper water, and that's where she went down. She was at the mercy of the ocean there, wasn't she? That's right. She was just drifting at the mercy of whatever wind and tide was operating. Shipwreck Tale with John McChrystal, Mikhail Lermontov, 1986. This week, the Mikhail Lermontov, 1986, Marlborough Sounds. She's at the bottom today, and it is a grave as well. Went down with uh, one of her engineers. This is a perplexing story. It really is. There are so many questions about why it happened, and the pilot, an experienced pilot, seemingly behaving strangely. She's lying on her side, no power left in the Marlborough Sounds. It's about 9 o'clock at night, more than 700 people aboard. The only bit of good fortune they had in this whole thing, really, apart from the fact that they were in sheltered waters, is the master of the Tarahiko decided he would ignore the cancellation of the May Day and just get into the vicinity so he could see for himself what the situation was. When he arrived at about 20 to 8 in the evening, he saw that that ship was going down. She was leaning over to the starboard and she was down in the head. That ship was sinking. He took it upon himself to call for general assistance. So despite the fact there's no mayday at this point from the Mikhail Lermontov, he requested everyone who floats to get there as quickly as they can to try to save life. The effect of that call probably was to save many, many lives. And also that goes against the code of the sea, doesn't it? You don't come to assistance if you're not asked. There's no obligation to go to anyone's assistance if they're not asking for it. And they cancelled the mayday. He just went and had a bit of a scroot. And God bless him. Absolutely, exactly that. He was there at nine o'clock, just far enough away to keep an eye on things and close enough to render assistance if necessary. And sure enough, one of the lifeboats from the Mikhail Lermontov arrived alongside with around 80 to 100 elderly and pretty frail people aboard. This is a tanker. It's not designed for picking people up at sea. So it would have been a difficult operation getting those people out of the water and onto the Tarihiko. But he managed it and sent the lifeboat back. The Arahura, in response to the Tarihiko's call for assistance, arrived at half past nine, and she assumed responsibility for coordinating the rescue. Now, the Mikhail Lermontov is drifting. Both the Arahura and the Tarahiko initially considered anchoring. The Tarahiko did. She was in danger of being run down by the drifting Mikhail Lermontov and had to pull up her anchors and stand clear. The Arahura, on the advice of the Tarahiko, stood clear. But you've got these three massive shapes in a relatively confined waterway with these frail little lifeboats plying between them. Even now that help was at hand, it was still a pretty dangerous situation. There's a strong breeze blowing and visibility is very poor. It's dark and it's raining. By quarter past ten, the Mikhail Lermontov bow is pretty much underwater and she's listing fully 40 degrees to starboard. And that's a big lean. Anyone who's ever tried climbing a a slippery piece of metal on a 40-degree angle could attest to just how difficult. Even now, they're still evacuating passengers. In these situations, the life-saving technology becomes difficult to use because it's all dangling well clear of the vessel. 
these poor old people were being asked to climb down rope ladders that were dangling away from the ship's hull. There's a sea running and whatever small vessels they're climbing into, sometimes they had to drop as much as two metres to get into them. They're pitching and rolling in the sea as well. It's all pretty dicey. Nobody knows if everybody's off or anything like that. There was an erroneous report of how many were supposedly aboard put about. It was thought at one stage that there were up to 990 people aboard. That's 200 more than were genuinely aboard, despite the fact that within an hour and a half of the vessel going down, everyone was aboard a rescue craft of one sort or another. There were conflicting reports about how many had been aboard, and it was feared for a while that anything between 75 and 200 people were unaccounted for. One passenger had been seen being washed off a lifeboat. He apparently had been clinging on the outside, and they couldn't persuade him to come inside and a wave knocked him off. So he was known to be in the water. He was lucky enough to be plucked from the water by the Taupo, a naval vessel which arrived, and he was in the advanced stages of hypothermia. There was so much debris in the water, life rafts and things had been seen still attached to the Mikhail Lermontov when she went underwater. It was by no means certain that they had everyone safe and sound aboard. A little addenda to the man who was plucked from the water in an advanced state of hypothermia. They spotted him because there was a light on the life jacket? That's right. I actually heard that he was in the water, his light didn't work, and he took it apart and put it back together and made it work while he was floating in the water. That's a remarkable one if it's true. Yeah, yeah, okay. Mikhail Lemontov sank quarter to 11 at night. Some testimony from passengers aboard Mikhail Lemontov. The noise from the ship was was unbelievable. You know, the air hissing out of um, ventilators and crashing of sounded like glass, but obviously bulkheads blowing with the pressure. It was very, very noisy explosions, um, great gushes of air, hissing and squealing and whistling, and, and then all of a sudden the bubble stopped coming up and everything just went dead silent. The head count is done, people make their way to safety and, and eventually Wellington. It's what happens in the wake of this and so many perplexing things that led to this tragedy was loss of life, but remarkably only one man. Could have been so much worse. Very expensive ship was lost and that became source of concern and no one was found criminally liable for it all, which in itself is quite remarkable. There are conspiracy theories over this, of course, and it would be remiss of us not to canvas them because they're good fun. The moment she struck, the captain's first order was to the radio officer, and that was basically, get me Vladivostok. In other words, put me in command with the Soviet headquarters, the military headquarters, what's more. There was a whole lot of strained diplomatic toing and froing between the New Zealand and Soviet governments. Longy cabled Gorbachev, as it was then, to say, very sorry, your ship has gone down in New Zealand waters. We'll hold an inquiry and we look forward to your full cooperation. Apparently the reply was, thanks for your expression of sympathy. Foreign Affairs noted the lack of a promise to provide full cooperation. The ship had been described as bristling with aerials, so maybe she wasn't all that she seemed to be. And it was widely believed in those days that of the crew of any merchant vessel from the Soviet Union, fully one quarter were KGB. Famously, when the captain was taken into the inquiry, he was photographed along with a man who bears a striking resemblance to Vladimir Putin, who is believed to have worked in the New Zealand-Australia region as a KGB officer. I think there's more than a grain of truth to that, and man, it does look like Putin. If you want to have a look at that photograph, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. It'll be there, or it's the photograph you're looking at if you're listening to this on replay. 
There are statements by some Russians that the Mikhail Lermontov was sunk deliberately, whether by the New Zealander on the orders of the New Zealand government or by the Soviet government. They're not sure. Well, the thing with the, the Cold War is that the KGB were everywhere. It doesn't matter where you go. They were everywhere. It was de rigueur, not necessarily conspiracy, because everything was a conspiracy. That's right. And it has to be remembered that conspiracies were flavour of the month at that stage too, because the Rainbow Warrior had changed everything. Until the Rainbow Warrior, no one believed that this kind of thing could happen in New Zealand. Foreign spy agencies doing strange things in New Zealand waters. After the Rainbow Warrior, everything was possible. It didn't sound too outlandish that there was some kind of sinister aspect to this tragedy as well. There are a whole lot of things that are just weird about it, but that weirdness probably just boils down to the inexplicability of the decision that Jamison made to take the ship through that narrow gap. We'll never know why he did it. He probably doesn't know himself. I feel a lot of sympathy for him because lots of people do stupid stuff on mistaken beliefs, mistaken, sincerely held beliefs, and the consequences are far less bad than this. He was a bit of a broken man after this, never really fronted to explain himself. He told the inquiry he was overworked and made an error of judgment. He wasn't Um, overworked, though, was he? Well, he was a tired man. He was on leave. That's why he was joining the ship to go to Sydney anyway. So he was tired and he needed a break. Whether that accounts for it, who knows? Mm. One thing that fueled conspiracy theories is that there was never a formal inquiry. There was only a preliminary inquiry, and it found Jamison had made a sudden decision to steer through that gap as it opened up before him. The police disputed that. They said that there had to have been quite a lot of planning for him to have made the corrections to the course that were made. The police thought there was something sinister about this. Winston Peters thought there was something sinister about this. And for about 10 years or so, this thing just didn't go away. There were books, there were newspaper articles, there were whispers in bar rooms, the usual stuff, all fueling the conspiracy. But it seems quite clear that the New Zealand pilot was in control of this ship. It was his decisions for whatever reason. That's the annoying thing. We don't get to the whys, really. We just know that he steered her into harm's way and there's no getting away from that, is there? No. In the end, I think you cannot avoid the conclusion that Don Jamison was on a telephone call to Mr Cockup at this point. The Soviet captain, of course, copped a bit of Soviet justice. It it never goes down well with bosses, and and Soviet bosses are are different to the ones that you and I know. Uh, He was demoted and sent to a bit of a rusty wreck in Africa. Yeah. It was standard practice to find someone Soviet responsible so that they could hang them out to dry. There's some justice there because he had no right to be off the bridge or at least to be calling the shots. So there's no way this pilot should have been allowed to go freelance in the way he was. It's the captain's responsibility that he was. Probably no conspiracy, just the fateful decision of someone. What do you reckon was going through Jameson's head when he said, let's go between the lighthouse and the mainland? I think he sincerely believed he had the water there and he just believed that he'd give them one last close-up encounter with the New Zealand landscape before she sailed down the west coast during the night and then arrived in the magnificence of Milford Sound. It was his final flourish, I think, of what he regarded as a spectacular view of a country that he was very fond of and proud of. I've never assumed that pilots would do anything other than what is safe. Isn't that their job? I mean, I don't want to be too hard on this guy, but he'd steered the ship to the rocks, I'm sorry. 
the number one thing is safety, isn't it? It's like an air traffic controller. You don't do a barrel roll before you come into land. It's a bit like a doctor too, I guess. The rule is first do no harm. You would have to think that safety is the sine qua non for a pilot. And I'm sure that most pilots stick to their knitting these days. It's probably a lesson, isn't it? You get a little bit overconfident and uh, but don't mess with the sea. Exactly right. Yeah. Jameson is still alive, living in Marlborough. It must haunt him, I suppose. Yeah, he's been retired since 2001. Every time he looks out to sea, he must remember that day. I feel very sorry for him. I feel very sorry for pretty much everyone involved with this. Uh, but in the end, we make mistakes and we live with them. Do you make anything of the reports from the Soviet crew that he banged his head, was feeling woozy, was not able to stand upright properly? Do you remember those descriptions? Yeah, one of the things he said in his defence was that when they had their little bit of manoeuvring difficulty in Shakespeare Bay, about two or three hours before this, he fell over on the deck and may have struck his head and that may have affected his judgement. No, I don't believe so. He was fully compassmentous in providing a tour guide commentary and calling the shots as they ran along the coast. It's just consistent with the policy he seems to have been pursuing to go nice and close to give everyone a good view in poor visibility. And it did cost the life of a man. How awful. And a massive ship, which is still there today. Have you dived here? I've been on two trips to dive here in bad weather's turned us back both times. I'll get there yet. <laughs> yeah. Dangerous dive, apparently. It silts up immediately. You go inside. I don't like going in, into shipwrecks anyway. As soon as you go inside, you stir up the silt and you can't see anything anymore, including the way out. So you've got to know what you're doing. John, thank you very, very much. Thanks, Graham. He was a harbour master, Port of Picton. He was a, the person with a local knowledge. He should have experience. I trusted him. Hope you're enjoying some of these reruns of the Shipwreck Tales. It's a method by which we can fill up the archive. It's nearly there. Next week, the Edmund Fitzgerald should see us totally complete we'll consult with john mccrystal all right tomorrow evening hear about the museum of natural mystery a strange thing in dunedin plus we're counting down to the end of world war one armistice 11th of november 1918 one of the most momentous occasions in modern history uh it would be up there with all time probably crikey thinking of what happened afterwards so much of it came from what happened in world war one and the nature of the versailles treaty okay also coming up in late october a new beatles album yeah somebody's found some extra stuff behind the piano uh it's the white album re-release because it's 50 years old someone's found something at george's old place and there are demos and things that people haven't heard before so okay look bring it on um, I'm interested. I won't be the only one. The White Album? What a thing. It saw, I, th I think it polarises people a, a bit in as much as, oh, John Lennon, you're at the height of your form, really, aren't you? Paul, not bad, except you did Ooblo D, Ooblo Da, which was voted one of the most hated songs of all time. Can you believe it? I don't think that's fair on the song or Paul. Desmond, do, 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 do. Okay, it's one of those silly, as John Lennon said, one of Paul's stupid granny songs. 
It's more than that. Paul's really good at that slice of life stuff. Ordinary lives made remarkable because you just tell them with clarity. And then there's that, was it a mistake? It doesn't matter. The genders get swapped at the end and the roles and things like that. Oh, it'd be the theme tune to Gender Studies 101. Um, lovely little slices of life. I don't have a problem with it. Oh, okay, I do have one. They did a version, it's called Take 5 of Oobla de Oobla Da, and I think it is superior. It adopts that sort of calypso reggae thing, I think, better than the original released version. On Desmond is apparently a reference to Desmond Decker. Oobla de Oobla Da, life goes on, bra. What does that mean? It means, ha, ah, come see, come see, whatever, life goes on. And it was a saying uh, that Jimmy Scott Emuakpo, uh, a conga player from Nigeria that Paul McCartney knew, used to use. He wouldn't have been the only one, but that's how it came about. So, up into the news, we won't hear it all, but this is the superior version. It is available. You can get it on the Anthology Series 3, Beatles Anthology Series 3. And when I first heard it, I went, wow, would have rather have had this the whole way through. Oobla D, I, yes, I'm going to do it. Oobla D, Oobla freaking da. Overnight Talk. It's midnight. Thank you very much for listening. Another Weekend Variety Wireless tomorrow from 8.